This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Arthur C. Clarke famously declared that sufficiently advanced technology was indistinguishable from magic, and my guest on this episode takes that concept very seriously. His name is Felix Flicker, and he is a physicist at the University of Cardiff. And if you take him at his word, he's also a wizard. His new book is called The Magic of Matter. Felix, you're a theoretical physicist by trade, but in your new book you claim, in fact, to be a wizard, because as far as you're concerned, physics is a kind of magic. What do you mean by that? Uh, Good question. Uh, I'd say that the, the modern study of magic is really physics. We look at the world, we try to spot hidden patterns that underlie reality, and um, we cause the world to be transformed. Um, this these seems like seem like the traits of a wizard. Specifically, though, I'd say the subject I study within physics, condensed matter physics, uh, is really the particularly wizardly part of it. So I think all of physics is magical, but uh, perhaps the condensed matter physicists are the are the ones closest to wizards. And what is it that a condensed matter physicist actually does? Uh, that's a very good question as well. Uh, So condensed matter physics is the study of the world around us. It's the states of matter and their transformations. So say solids melting to liquids, liquids boiling to gases, this kind of thing. But also understanding how those states of matter come about through the interactions of particles uh, in the world of quantum mechanics on small scales. And in some ways that seems much less magical than sort of big physics like black holes and multiverses and the kind of thing that we're more familiar with from pop science books. Um, Exactly. I think all of physics is the study of magic in one form or another. And if you look at things like that are inherently magical, like black holes, gravitational waves, they're very large like that. And also the very small things like string theory, elementary particles. These are magical in a way that doesn't need explaining. But the study of the familiar world around us is uh, its magic is more subtle. Uh, but that's precisely where I think the uh, magic of wizardry comes in, because if you think about what wizards do, they don't tend to change the laws of reality. They don't affect the universe on a huge scale or a t- uh, rewrite the laws of physics on the smaller scales. They do bits of practical hands-on magic with familiar stuff that helps the other characters or, the, or their friends. And I think that's essentially what condensed matter physicists do. Uh, we study the familiar, the world around us, the states of matter, and we study the practical. We make new technologies like LED lights, for example, where 10, 15 years ago, you'd have had a, a light bulb in your house would be an incandescent bulb that would be maybe 100 watts. 
And these days we can do that job with like a two watt LED. So an LED is a crystal and we, through some act of magic, act of wizardry, we can cause this crystal to light up. And, and we do this, this act of magic all the time. And that those are the modern lights in our houses. And so it's, it's practical and familiar. And I think that's essentially what the type of magic that wizards do. And that's what condensed matter physicists do as well. Condensed matter physics boils down to the concept of emergence, which is an idea that is central to reality as we know it. What is emergence? <laughs> Very good question. I think the simplest way to put it is that emergence is the process by which, in some cases, the whole can be more than the sum of the parts. So this is quite a familiar idea. The states of matter embody it very clearly. If you think of, say, condensation on a window, the, the name condensed matter physics comes from this idea of condensation, broadly interpreted. So when water appears on a window, that's condensation. And what's really happening there is that water is in its gaseous form in the air, as water vapour, and it condenses. The molecules of water interact, and through those interactions, they stick together and they become a familiar thing, liquid water that we can see and touch. And you can still describe the water as made up of molecules, and that's still an accurate description. But something would be lost if you thought of it only as individual molecules. It has these emergent properties uh, that we're familiar with. You know, we have properties of water that you can think of. You can, you can touch it, you know how it feels. Um, it might be feeling a bit cold, that kind of thing. And none of this is present at the level of molecules. So it's something that comes about through the interactions of many molecules, which couldn't be, uh, it, there would be something that would be missed if you just looked at things as individual molecules. So it's uh, the whole that's come about that is more than the sum of the individual molecules in this case. Let's delve a little bit into this concept of matter. Many ancient civilizations identified four elements, and those map quite nicely onto the four most familiar kinds of matter. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a really good analogy. Uh, so, of course, people once said there are four elements, earth, air, fire and water, and everything is made of some combination of these. Now, we don't believe that in modern science, but actually we do believe something rather similar, which is that there are four states of matter. So solids, liquids, gases and plasma is what's often called the fourth state of matter, which is an ionised gas where the atoms uh, and molecules in the gas have become so energetic that they've lost some of their electrons so as to become positively charged. And you have this gas of um, positively and negatively charged ions. And you see that the, the four elements that we, we say the world is made of are essentially the four classical elements of earth, air, fire and water. And you can see the analogy continues a bit further. You might say, for example, what is a metal? Well, we might a metal is a solid. Uh, but it also conducts electricity. And so in that sense, maybe it's a bit like a plasma as well. And that's how we think of it in condensed matter physics. We'd say uh, metals are solids, but the electrons are free to flow. And so they have they form a plasma within the, uh, the solid. And so you might have said in the classical elements that you might think of metals as some combination of uh, earth and fire. And put into the new terminology, essentially that's still what we think. But of course, there are actually more than four states of matter. Those are just the four most familiar ones. And it's the case, isn't it, that the unfamiliar states of matter that you just alluded to are encountered by us every day. You know, I was delighted to discover from your book, for example, that milk is not a liquid. Yes. I mean, it depends on your classification, of course, but uh, many of these other states of matter are quite familiar, as you say. So exactly like emulsions, you might consider um, you can have. So milk, for example, is globules of fat within a liquid water. Uh, and it, it, the question is really, when we try and say, what is a state of matter? Well, you have to say, what's a useful description in the context that you're you're asking about? 
And so in many cases, you could say milk is liquid, but in others, it is, has ways in which it's different. So some of the other states of matter that are quite familiar are things like liquid crystals that are used in liquid crystal displays, like modern televisions. Um, and these have properties that are somewhere between solids and liquids. Uh, but a very familiar state of matter that we don't often think of as a state of matter is magnetism. So you can have magnets could be solids, liquids, gases, or even plasmas. Uh, so it's, it's independent of those. If you take a magnet uh, and you heat it up, then at a certain temperature, suddenly it stops being magnetic. It's called the Curie temperature. And if you cool it back down through that temperature, it spontaneously becomes magnetic again. And it's very much like water, say, boiling to steam and then uh, cooling it down and it, it recondenses into water. It's a, a change of state. Uh, and, and magnets do this just like other things. So you can think of magnetism as a state of matter that's very familiar, but uh, beyond the four that we traditionally refer to. The idea that matter is made up of discrete units, i.e. atoms, is a very old idea, but its adoption by science is relatively recent. Will you tell us about that? Yes. So I think if I get the history right, uh, and I'm not a historian, so <laughs> I hope I'm going to get it right, the, you know, the idea of atomism is ancient. Uh, you know, famously, it, we attribute it to uh, Democritus, I think, from the Greeks, but actually it was known earlier in India, for example, uh, in Persia, but various cultures around the world have had this idea that the world is made up of discrete units. But it had fallen out of favour in the late 19th century, and essentially this was because of how well we were doing with the laws of thermodynamics, which were developed with the invention of um, steam engines and this kind of thing. And that seemed to be, um, we had a very nice description of the world as, as continuous in that case. The models we were using were of continuous things like heat that sort of flows continuously. And so people had started to disbelieve in atoms and started to think that the world was continuous after all. And so it was really the work of Albert Einstein that put us back on the right track. He famously in 1905, he published four papers, each of which could have revolutionized physics by itself. Uh, he did all four at once. Uh, and it was after that that uh, one of those papers in particular that led us to believe again that the world is made up of atoms. People who believe in magic, particularly New Age sort of magic, love crystals. But you, an actual scientist, also think crystals are pretty magical. There is a sense in which the world is just inherently magical and we can enjoy that magic. And then I've had to think in writing this book, what do I actually mean by magic? because there's a sort of uh, loose sense in which things are magical, but I'm using it in a slightly more precise sense. And I think really, when I say the world is magical, I mean that the world has an ability to inspire us. Uh, and I think that's the sort of magic that's inherently present in things like black holes and gravitational waves and string theory. That it, Just hearing about those things inspires us to want to hear more and to think, well, that's the world we live in, that's exciting. I think crystals have this property as well. They are inherently uh, inspiring. We, we see some of their magical powers. You know, it depends how much you study them as to how many of these powers you see. But some common ones are things like um, quartz crystals have the power of piezoelectricity. This means that if you squeeze a quartz crystal, you generate an electrical voltage. Um, and a voltage, you may recall, is you can think of it, if you think of electric current uh, as like the flow of a river, the flow of current is like the flow of a river, then a voltage is like a hill in a landscape, which encourages that river to flow. And so by squeezing a quartz crystal, you can cause electric currents to flow. And if you ever um, had an electric lighter, so you have a lighter that you, you, the spark comes from uh, electricity somehow, rather than a flint. If you ever took one of those apart and had a look at it, you'd find that what happens there is you squeeze a quartz crystal. It's hidden down in, in a component in the lighting mechanism. Uh, but all you're doing is squeezing a quartz crystal. There's no battery in one of those lighters. And that causes a spark to jump through the air, which goes through a gas and ignites it. Um, so that's the sort of magical power of a crystal. 
there another let, let's see what others are there there's um some very cool ones are things like uh, birefringence or double refraction. This is shown by calcite very strongly. So if you place a calcite crystal over the words of a book, you see two copies of the words. And when you rotate the crystal, one of the copies of the words rotates around the other one. Uh, so that's a very cool power that um, that calcite has. I, I have a crystal of calcite myself. Um, there's a bit of overlap as, uh, with the... Um, the kind of new age uh, area when you go and buy crystals because there are generally crystal shops in most towns, but they're sort of new age places. And so when I went to get my crystal of calcite to test this out, this for myself, this spirofringence, uh, I went to a crystal healing shop and I was looking at them and, and I think the uh, proprietor saw me looking at the different crystals and uh, and putting them on words and things. And she came over and told me that um, that calcite is very good for healing your vision if you have bad vision. And I said, all right, do people believe that because of this effect? If you put it on words and rotate it, then one copy rotates around the other one. And uh, she looked rather blankly at me. (laughs) Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. One of the most magical things about crystals is polarization. Well, crystals uh, allow us to explore polarization. Uh, and polarization is a property of light, really, rather than the, the crystals themselves. But certain crystals like calcite, so when it creates these two images of the words, uh, really what's happening there is that a beam of light Uh, is being split into two, and each of those two beams has a different polarization. So you can think of it, if you think of light as a wave, you can imagine, say, imagine tying like a skipping rope to something and and waggling the free end of the skipping rope up and down. Then you'd make a wave on your skipping rope. But you could also make a wave by waggling it side to side. And those two different cases would be like two different uh, polarizations of that wave, one going vertical and one going horizontal. And light can have this property as well. So when light passes through calcite, it splits into two beams, and one of the beams waggles uh, in a vertical plane. And waggle in this case means that the electric field, because light is an electromagnetic wave, it has an electric part and a magnetic part. The electric part goes vertically in one and horizontally in the other. And crystals do indeed let us uh, explore that and study it. If we want to understand the magic of crystals in more depth, we first need to understand symmetry and just how important symmetry is to physics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so symmetry is hugely important to physics. I mean, it's not just condensed matter physics. Uh, all of physics is arguably the study of symmetry. It's it's a little bit difficult to pin down exactly what we mean by physics, uh, but one definition physicists like to use is that it's the study of symmetry. Maybe it's slightly overselling it, but not very much. So symmetries are things... That the, the obvious symmetry that we know of is like a mirror symmetry. You'd say something's symmetric if it looks the same in a mirror, if its mirror image looks the same. So a left glove would turn into a right glove, so that doesn't have a mirror symmetry. But a bowl, say, would have a mirror symmetry, for example. And a person has a mirror symmetry. Actually, if you don't mind me diverting slightly to tell you a, a famous riddle that the uh, physicist Richard Feynman used to pose to people. He said, why is it that when you look in a mirror, it flips you left to right, but doesn't flip you top to bottom? I, I got very confused about this as an undergraduate, and I think I spent about three weeks uh, in my confusion and when you get the, I think you have to sort of get puzzled about it to get to get the answer, really. But uh, otherwise, it's just sort of uh, you think, oh, well, maybe it's something else. But 
essentially the answer is that uh, we have a mirror symmetry down our center. So our left half looks pretty much like our right half in the mirror. And that's not true of us uh, top to bottom. Our head doesn't look like our feet in the mirror, for example. So essentially, that's the reason. The mirror doesn't really flip you left to right or top to bottom. It creates a mirror image. But because we have this line of approximate mirror symmetry down our middle, we interpret it as we look at the mirror and we think, oh, that's like us, where we've stepped around the mirror. Uh, but then we have to say, oh, but it's not quite right because now my left hand's become my right. We don't look at the mirror and think, oh, that's like me, but I've climbed over the top of the mirror and landed on my head on the other side because we just don't look like that at all. But actually, that would be another way to interpret it. And then you'd have a much more complicated time trying to... Uh, make it look like you, if that was your interpretation. One reason that alchemists and magicians aren't successful, while physicists are, is that physicists work within the three and a half laws of thermodynamics. Can you tell us about the three and a half laws and how on earth you can have a half law? <laughs> well, the half is my interpretation, I guess. Yeah, so that's that's the way I phrased it in the book, exactly. Like Alchemy got a lot right, certainly, and you could say it's sort of early chemistry. And we use various techniques developed by alchemists. The Bain-Marie is a, a, a device for keeping a very uniform temperature through something. It's used in cooking, but also in chemistry. Uh, and that was invented by uh, somebody who people claim as the earliest alchemist, which is Mary the Prophetess. She was working uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. So we've used a lot of stuff that alchemists created. Um, but there was also this side to alchemy that, that didn't um, hold up when we started uh, looking for properties of the world that could be tested repeatedly and, and confirmed. And so I'd say this kind of got codified with the three and a half laws of thermodynamics. So there are three um, well-known laws. Uh, the first is essentially the conservation of energy. The second says that the universe tends to disorder and tends to means uh, you know, as, as time moves forwards, as, as we experience the forward progression of time, things become more disordered. So like eggs break, for example, they don't unbreak even though an unbreaking egg could in principle be compatible with conservation of energy. So the second law says that doesn't happen. And the third law says that, well, it's a little bit complicated, but it says uh, the entropy, which is our complicated name for um, disorder, entropy tends to zero as um, temperature tends towards absolute zero, uh, which is the coldest possible temperature. And loosely you can think of that as the temperature at which all motion stops. Uh, although in the book I discuss why that's not quite right. But the half a law is that um, there's also a zeroth law of thermodynamics, which got added later. You can tell it got added later and that it's very important because it's called zero. And if it had been realized that it was so important at the start, they'd have called it one and there would be four laws. So instead, there's three plus a zeroth law. And the zeroth law, the easiest way to understand it is that it says thermometers work. It has a more complicated phrasing. Thermometers work is the way it was taught to me by my uh, condensed matter physics lecturer, Professor Stephen Blundell, when I was in Oxford. And I think that's the uh, the best way to think of it. Um, it's not immediately obvious, but uh, the the reason you have... Well, you can see why thermometers have to work for the rest of thermodynamics to work, because you need to know what temperature is. Um, but the essential idea is that when you look at your thermometer, and the analogy I give in the book is, say you want to go um, you want to go out fishing, but it's, it's quite cold, uh, and it might be freezing. You don't necessarily look at the lake to see if it's frozen. You look at your thermometer, and if the thermometer says it's gone below zero, then you assume that the lake has frozen. But implicit in that is saying, okay, so the thermometer is in thermal equilibrium with the air around it. So it's we can assign the same temperature to those things. But then you also assume that if you took the thermometer and you put it into the lake, and then the thermometer would be in thermal equilibrium with the lake. And then you assume that it's also true that the air and the water are in thermal equilibrium. And any two of those equilibria implies the third. 
and that need not necessarily be true. Um, so a tip, let's see, a good example, the, the famous example of something that doesn't obey that property is uh, stone, paper, scissors. So in the game of stone, paper, scissors, paper beats stone. Uh, scissors are blunted by stone, so stone beats scissors. And so if paper beats stone and stone beats scissors, you'd think, okay, so therefore it must be the case that paper beats scissors as well. But in fact, that's not true. Scissors beats paper. Uh, and so you can see that you can have a relationship between two things. Um, so you can have it between A and B and B and C, uh, but that doesn't imply the same relationship between A and C. The zeroth law of thermodynamics says that uh, temperatures don't work like stone, paper, scissors. Thus far, we've been discussing the sort of classical world of uh, matter that we all experience, but this is all underpinned by the very magical world of quantum mechanics. Right. Quantum mechanics is the study of unfamiliar stuff. And in that sense, it's quite easy to see its magic. But actually, that magic manifests itself in our familiar world. So if you return to crystals of calcite, remember these, you send light in, it splits into two beams. And so if you put a calcite crystal over some words, you see two copies of the words. But what happens on the smallest scale? Because when it's a beam of light, that's kind of fine. You could think it's like a river forking, for example, into two. But what's the beam of light made of? And again, it's Einstein we have to thank for our current understanding of this. And we think of a beam of light as made up of individual particles of light, which we call a photon. But when you think of that, then the calcite crystal suddenly becomes a lot more magical because what happens when you, you send a, a beam of light in, it splits into two. But what happens when you send a single photon in? It either goes one way or another. And so you could send a photon in and it goes one of the two ways. Now you set up exactly the same experiment. You send an identical photon in it goes into the same place in the crystal, but this time it goes a different way out. Uh, and so this is really quite bizarre because all of physics, until we came up with quantum mechanics, before that point, all of physics was essentially deterministic. I mean, it's the basis of science, essentially, that if you set up the same experimental conditions, you expect to get the same results in the experiment, right? That's what repeatability is. It's the central concept of science. Uh, but we can see that in quantum mechanics, just from looking at a calcite crystal, you can see that's not going to be the case you can set up an identical experiment and get a different outcome. And so in quantum mechanics, we can see already from that experiment that it's not possible to say with certainty how things are going to behave. We can only give probabilities for them to happen. And that's fundamentally different to anything we experience in our world. If we were to flip a quantum coin and catch it, it would not be heads or tails until we looked at it. Well, that's, yeah, um... <laughs> So I teach uh, quantum mechanics. I, I lecture quantum mechanics to the second year undergraduates in Cardiff. And interpreting quantum mechanics is incredibly tricky. So I've set them for their coursework. They have to defend an interpretation of quantum mechanics because there are many interpretations, um, but they all agree on the maths. And the maths is the thing that quantum mechanics really says. So we do get into interpretational issues with that question. So you toss a quantum coin and you slap it on the table. Uh, if it were a normal coin, then you know that it's either heads or tails before you look. And turning your hand over and taking a look at the coin just reveals to you what which of those two options it was. Now, a quantum coin we know is different. We toss it, we slap it down. Okay, loosely interpreted. We do a complicated quantum mechanical experiment that does this same process, but loosely we think of doing this. And we can see that in certain experiments, the coin must behave like it's neither heads nor tails before we look. But there isn't a sort of interpretational issue there because you could say, well, what's so special about a person looking? Can something else look at it? Does the experimental apparatus look at it? 
So there is a bit of interpretation there, but uh, there are certainly experiments that uh, act as if, well, no, we, we can verify that in, in certain conditions, it's behaving much more like uh, the second case where it doesn't have a value until uh, we look. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the subject of interpretations of quantum theory, what promise does quantum field theory have for explaining some of the more esoteric aspects of quantum mechanics? Yeah, so quantum field theory is really the combination of quantum mechanics with, well, so it's the combination of Einstein's revolutionary ideas, essentially. It's a combination of quantum mechanics and special relativity, which is also quite magical. Uh, So the study of things when they start moving at uh, very high speeds and start approaching the speed of light, things um, again behave in a very unfamiliar way. Um, And when you combine these two things, it turns out that you also have a third factor, which is that you can't really study particles in isolation. Uh, You need to study many particles at once. So if you try to consider a single particle, you make it energetic enough, you start having to study additional particles, which can get created out of nothing in particle-antiparticle pairs. Um, so quantum field theory is the, the slightly more complicated uh, successor to quantum mechanics when we take account of special relativity. And that's actually very important in, in sort of particle physics, but also in condensed matter physics, it turns out, where we inherently study many particles at once because the particles would be things like the electrons and protons making up atoms and a typical lump of stuff has a huge number of, of electrons and protons and neutrons in it. Now, quantum mechanics already has a huge impact on the modern world, but one of its most exciting applications is in the future of computing. Can you tell us about the concept of a quantum computer and how it will almost certainly change the world? (laughs) Yeah, so a quantum computer uses quantum mechanics to carry out certain calculations much faster than any traditional computer could. So it's only, only certain calculations that we have methods for having quantum computers do them faster. But some of those calculations are hugely important. Uh, for example, a famous example is what's called Shor's algorithm, is a uh, an algorithm. Sorry, an algorithm is, a, uh, you can think of it like a, a recipe that an alchemist might follow to get some result. They can look in their, their book of alchemy and say, okay, I want to transmute lead into gold. I have to follow this sequence of um, processes. So an algorithm for a computer is a, a set of steps that you'd have to take to get some kind of outcome from some some input. And the outcome might be the calculation you're trying to do. So Shor's algorithm is a method that uh, an algorithm that would run on a quantum computer, and it can factorize numbers into products of prime numbers. So any integer number can be expressed as a product of prime numbers. And Shor's algorithm can, given the number, it can work out what the, the prime factors are of that number. Now, that turns out to be a very important calculation to do. And most current uh, internet security is based on the idea that it's extremely hard to, given a number, factor it into its prime factors. That's essentially the basis of internet security at the moment. And so a quantum computer could do that uh, almost instantaneously when it's all not just the internet security, but banking security and so on, any electronic security is essentially predicated on the idea that this should be essentially impossible to do, but that's using current technology. 
Why is it so difficult to build a working, useful quantum computer? So essentially, the power of a quantum computer comes from the fact that, um, well, they work with quantum bits rather than uh, usual bits. A bit is a the smallest bit of information, and we think of it as a zero or a one. A quantum computer uh, doesn't just have zero or one, it can have a what's called a quantum superposition of zero and one. And this is like the quantum coin toss you referred to earlier. Before you look, it can be uh, both zero and one, or neither zero nor one. It's, it's a superposition of both. And when you look, it takes the value either zero or one. So that's one of the ways in which quantum computers can uh, be more powerful than any possible computer that doesn't use the laws of quantum mechanics. Um, so the power comes in from the fact that if you take take a, a traditional computer, what we call a classical computer, if you want to double its power, you essentially just uh, double the number of bits in its memory. You can double its RAM, for example. So if you take a supercomputer, a supercomputer is not some special computer, it's actually just loads and loads of normal computers stuck together. And if you want to double the computing power of your supercomputer, you double the number of computers you stuck together to make it. The power of a quantum computer is that to double its power, you just add a single qubit. So you add a single quantum bit to it. So you don't double the number of quantum bits, you just add one more to it. That's the power of it. But that's also the difficulty with it, because you need to add that quantum bit to all the others and make it communicate with the others. The technical phrase for this is you need to maintain quantum coherence between all your qubits. And adding that extra qubit, essentially, you know, there's... um. Have you heard there's this, uh, of, I think it's called the law of, uh, I think it's the law of conservation of, of magic or honest conservation of effort, I think was how Terry Pratchett put this. It's a sort of rephrasing of the first law of thermodynamics, but he says that when wizards are, are casting spells, the amount of effort it takes to cast the spell should uh, always be at least as much as, as the effort it would have taken you to achieve the same task non-magically, I think was how he put it. And so this kind of comes back in quantum computers because adding that extra qubit, well, it doubles your power, but it's also essentially twice as hard to add it. Um, so th the problem is at the moment that we have quantum computers, but they only have fairly small numbers of qubits for this reason, that adding an extra one, we have to make it coherent with all previous ones. And this gets exponentially harder with the number of qubits you add. And the, the power of the computer becomes exponentially more powerful, but it's, it's also exponentially harder to do it. So it's a, there's an engineering challenge to doing this. And there's also another approach is a kind of theoretical physics approach, of finding a way to remove the problems, the, the barriers to this. And the problems are essentially that to maintain quantum coherence, quantum mechanics is, you think of as something that happens on very small scales and also in very clean systems and where they don't have problems with like vibrations and things, noise coming from the environment. And so the, the theoretical physics approach to this is to try and find a way to make the qubits somehow not worry about the noise, about uh, the, the disordering effects of the environment and so on. And the engineering challenge is just to, to work with what we've got and, uh, and see how many qubits we can add in. Putting quantum mechanics and quantum computing aside for a moment, what else excites you about the state of condensed matter physics at the moment? And what can listeners get excited to see in the coming years? I suppose it depends if they're excited about applications or the inherent magic of the subject. Both, please. Um, both. Both. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the nice thing about wizardry is that uh, it's compatible both with practical applications and the inherent sense of magic. So I think uh, superconductors are a good example, which really covers both, actually. So a superconductor is uh, a new state of matter, and it's one which conducts electricity perfectly without resistance. Uh, so it has practical applications. You can imagine making power lines out of superconductors, 
and you could send electricity as far as you like down those lines and you wouldn't lose any of this along the way. Whereas with current technology, power lines lose a huge amount of their energy just transmitting the energy from one place to another. So for example, I calculated that in the United States every year, the amount of energy that's lost transmitting the electricity down the lines, the amount that's lost in one year would be enough to power every streetlight in Manhattan for a thousand years. So it's a huge amount that's lost. And and none would be lost if we use superconductors. And in fact, it's not uh, a kind of pipe dream that we're already building superconducting power lines. In Essen, in Germany, they have a superconducting power line. It goes under the ground rather than above ground because uh, all superconductors that we know of only become superconductors at very low temperatures. So you need liquid nitrogen to cool them. Even the ones that work at the highest temperatures need liquid nitrogen. But that then gets on to the magic of the subject. Condensed matter physicists are very excited about superconductors, in particularly the ones that work at high temperature, um, because superconductors themselves have been known since uh, 1911. I'd say this is probably the closest we ever came to alchemy, by the way. Kamerling Onnes was the physicist who discovered superconductors. He'd invented the means of, uh, of cooling things down to the coldest temperatures ever achieved, and certainly the coldest temperatures ever achieved on Earth, uh, and uh, by humans or otherwise. Uh, so when he started cooling things down to very low temperatures, and he took uh, lead was one of the first things he took, which is a classic alchemist element. And rather than turn into gold, it turned into a new state of matter, this superconductor, and it started conducting electricity without loss. And it took us about 40 or so years to explain how that was happening. But we did explain it in the mid-1950s, with what's called the BCS theory of superconductivity. It's named after its three creators, their initials. And it's one of the best theories we have in condensed matter physics. It perfectly explains superconductors. It explained a load of other phenomena, or sorry, like other things they could do that we didn't know that they could do. Um, we were, and these, these new results were immediately uh, tested and verified and the Nobel Prize went to the creators very rapidly. But it also told us that theory that uh, there's a highest temperature which superconductors can ever exist. And unfortunately, that temperature is extremely low. It's much lower than the, the boiling point of nitrogen, for example. So you couldn't use liquid nitrogen to create superconductors. So it was a complete surprise in the 1980s then, about 30 or so years after that theory came out, when it turned out that there were things that became superconductors at much higher temperatures, higher than should possibly exist. And they were totally different materials. All superconductors until then had been metals. So they conducted quite well normally, and they, you cool them down and suddenly they conduct perfectly. These new materials were rubbish conductors at normal temperatures. They were things like uh, ceramics, so something essentially like porcelain or something. So it, w it wasn't what we were expecting. And, and this thing that's a very bad conductor suddenly becomes a brilliant, well, a, a perfect conductor again at low temperatures. Uh, but the temperature at which they can do it is now a lot higher. And we don't have a theory for this at all. So there is no theoretical explanation as to how those materials are able to superconduct. And I'd say that's the most pressing question in condensed matter physics is explaining that, both for the practical applications and also the inherent magic of this new state of matter that we just have no idea how it works. Wow, so it really is magic for now. Well, Felix, thank you so much for this whistle-stop tour of the amazing and magical world of condensed matter physics. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been a, a, a great joy hearing these uh, very pressing questions. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Felix Flicker and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty. The show is made by me and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate, review and subscribe and pick up a copy of Felix's book, The Magic of Matter, wherever good books are sold. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>